And our second reading is just a page over in the Blue Bibles to 178. So 2 Kings 8, verse 1 to 6. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is the son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Thank you, Lauren. Well, let's pray together as we come to this passage this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have uh, richly provided for us in Christ. And Lord, we praise you because you are the God of provision, of providence, of goodness, and of great grace and mercy. So Father, we pray that as we come to this passage this morning, Lord, would you ready our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many stories about God's, uh, God meeting a financial need or a material need or something like that just in the nick of time have you heard? At least one, maybe? A few? Well, one I read about this week... Uh, which I really enjoyed, was from Hudson Taylor's autobiography. Uh, Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission, Mission in the 19th century, and one of the things that they did was they often provided a Monday to Saturday feeding program for the poor, and that sometimes attracted anywhere between 40 and 80 people. One particular week, uh, they had not a single dollar left by Saturday morning, they paid off all their expenses, they did all the things that they needed to do, they got to Saturday morning and they thought, we have no idea how we're going to pull off feeding, doing this program again on Monday. And so here's what Taylor wrote in his diary on the 18th of November in 1857. How the Lord was going to provide for Monday, we knew not. But over our mantelpiece hung two scrolls in the Chinese character, Ebenezer, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us, and Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And he kept us from doubting for a moment. That very day, the mail came in a week sooner than was expected, and Mr. Jones received a bill for $214. We thanked God and took courage. The bill was taken to a merchant, and although there is usually a delay of several days in getting the change, this time he said, send down on Monday. We sent, and though we had not been able to buy all the dollars, he let us have 70 on account, so all was well. Oh, it is sweet to live thus directly dependent upon the Lord who never fails us. On Monday, the poor had their breakfast as usual, for we had not told them not to come, being assured that it was the Lord's work and that the Lord would provide. We could not help our eyes, filling with tears of gratitude, 
when we saw not only our own needs supplied, but the widow and the orphan, the blind and the lame, the friendless and the destitute, together provided for by the bounty of him who feeds the ravens. I don't normally cry this early in a sermon. (laughs) But what a story of God's faithful provision. Now, for most of us, I think, uh, these stories, they are few and far between in our experience, especially ones that are as dramatic and as timely and just as exact as this. And yet God has and does continue to do exactly this. In our passage this morning, we have just such an account of God providing for His people. Do you live each day trusting that God will provide? And how deep is that trust? This morning we're going to be working our way through the passage without any specific points again as we consider what God is saying to us through it. But by the title of the sermon that you would have seen before, that will give you an idea of the major themes that I'll be extracting from it. So let's consider God's perfect providential provision as we read about the Shunammite woman in chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please have them open and follow along with us from verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come uh, come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now, this isn't the first time that we've met the Shunammite woman, as Lauren read for us earlier in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. She's the one who provided hospitality for Elisha and Gehazi, and the one whom Elisha prophesied would have a son because she didn't have one. And then, as we read earlier, that son died and she went to Elisha, who then came and raised him from the dead. The Lord looked after her then, and here we see a continuation of God's providential care for the Shunammite woman. Interestingly, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah pronounced a drought on Israel which would lead to a famine and was an explicit act of God's judgment on Israel and his, as a result of their sin and their covenant unfaithfulness. It's possible, and perhaps even probable, given what we've come to expect from the kings of the nation of Israel, that this is once again God's judgment on Israel for the same thing. The Bible doesn't tell us here explicitly that 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 is what is happening, but it's probably a safe assumption that that is what's going on. Either way, it is clear here, as it so often is throughout Scripture, that God is the one who brings rain and who brings seed and makes it grow or not grow, according to the power of His Word. And so the Lord is about to bring about another famine on the land that will last seven years, and so Elisha goes to the Shunammite woman and tells her to take her whole household and sojourn, or to live as a foreigner, anywhere that she can go where they won't suffer from the effects of the famine. And what we see right from the outset of this passage is how God cares and provides for His people. Even in the midst of God's covenant punishments on the whole nation of Israel for their disobedience, he still had his his faithful remnant who were faithful to him. This is what we've seen right throughout this series of 2 Kings. Elijah and Elisha, God's faithful prophets, they are taken care of by God. Elijah was fed by ravens, Elisha fed by various people that he ministered to, and the sons of the prophets, and and Elisha's miracle in healing the death in the pot, as well as the multiplication of the bread, we see God looking after his faithful people. And of course, as we've already seen, he has done so also with the Shunammite woman in chapter 4, and now today. In both Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which we've looked at a couple of times over this series, There are not just covenant curses pronounced for disobedience, which is what we've seen uh, most of the time over the last few weeks, 
But also in those chapters, there is a flip side of the coin. God promises covenant blessings to the people of Israel for their obedience. And so God has always looked after and provided for His covenant people. That's what we've seen in the life of the Shunammite woman. What's your level of trust in the provision of God? Now, to be sure, we live under a different covenant as Christians, which we'll get into a little bit later, but you can still trust that God will provide for all your physical needs. Do you have a bedrock confidence in knowing that God will provide for all that you need to live? For me, this is honestly something that I wrestle with. It's not that I don't trust that God provides. I do, as, as far as I can tell, as, as much as I would hope that I do. It's actually that I'm just unsure about what I really do trust at, at bottom. Am, am I really trusting that God is the one who provides Or is it just that there are so many layers of protection in our society that I just don't have to worry about it? As Australians, we have a reasonable safety net built into our society. I mean, there's there's insurance for permanent disability if you can no longer work. We have government payments. We have family, church, church and and friends. Uh, Sure, I mean, we, we might not be able to live at the same standard that we do now if something goes really bad. But the risk of of dying of starvation is is extremely low. And so I wonder, do I not worry about that because of the safety of that safety net? Or is there truly, at the very bottom of that, a deep trust? A deep trust that God really does care for and look after His people. No doubt, our brothers and sisters in parts of the world that don't enjoy the same social safety net that we have, have much to teach us on this front. Where does your sense of security about where your next meal is coming from, come from? Keep pondering that question because we'll come back to it. Right from the beginning of this interaction between Elisha and the Shunammite woman, we see that God has cared for her by warning her of the hard times ahead and telling her to stay somewhere that won't be affected by the famine. And look at her response in verse 2. She arises and she does according to the word of the man of God, which was the word of God. Having experienced God's faithfulness in her life before, by giving her a son, which seemed impossible in that situation, and then raising him back to life, the Shunammite woman knew the goodness of God. She knew that his word could be trusted, and she acted accordingly. And not only did she act on his word, but of all places, she went to the land of the Philistines, Philistia. You can see on the map there, this. She's probably kind of around here to begin with, and then she heads south towards Egypt to Philistia. This is one of Israel's age-old enemies. This is almost as bad as Territorians going to Victoria. Before the famine had, had even hit, she trusted God by going to hostile territory for provision. Now that is a woman who has believed God's word, and in her hour of greatest need... She obeyed and acted in faith. Wouldn't it be wonderful for it to be said of us that when we face our hours of greatest need, that we trust the Lord's word, that we believe it and that we respond to it in obedience and in faith. Pray that we would be children of God like that. And so she heads south towards Egypt, stops in the land of Philistines, there she stays, she sojourns for seven years. Let's pick up again in verse 3 to see what happens when she gets back. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. It's probable by 
that by this stage, she was a widow. Uh, If her husband were around, she likely wouldn't have been doing this, uh, appealing to the king with her son, but without her husband. Because the kind of, that kind of responsibility usually lay with the husbands. And if that is the case, then this shows yet another example of God's care for the most vulnerable in society. As we read over and over in Scripture, He instructs His people to look after the orphan and the widow. And from what we know from around this time, uh, apparently land that was deserted for a period of time temporarily became crown land which would explain why she had to appeal to the king to get it back. She couldn't just waltz in after seven years and say, hey, give me my land back. And so here she is, coming to appeal to the king. The only problem is that so far, Israel's kings have been pretty terrible and unreliable. The women in chapter 6, they weren't able to get any help from the king because the siege had destroyed everything. Not only that, the king then refused to turn to God, who was the only one who could actually bring the help. Had he done that, he would have been able to help them. If we look even further back in 1 Kings 21, Ahab was told, uh, sorry, was totally unjust in his dealings with Naboth and his vineyard. Not only does, did he do wrong by asking for land that uh, was given by God to Naboth and his family, he went even further in his wickedness, by allowing his wife to get Naboth killed and then take the land. And so as the Shunammite woman comes to appeal for her land to get it back, given the history of what we've seen and read so far, we wonder to ourselves, is the king in this instance, is he going to do the right thing? Or is King Jehoram going to be like his father Ahab? Well, thanks be to God that the Lord, He is the High King. And that when His people appeal to Him, that they can trust that He will do what is right and that He will look after them, even if earthly kings and earthly rulers won't. But I'm sure that raises some questions for you. Firstly, what does this mean for us today? We're almost 3,000 years after this event and in a different part of the world and post-Jesus coming to earth. Is there something in this passage that speaks to our ability to go to God and to appeal for the things that we want or the things that we need? Let me answer that by zooming out of our passage and looking at Matthew 6, where Jesus picks up on these biblical theological themes of our need and God's provision. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you'd like to. I don't have a page number, sorry. But if somebody does, just yell it out. In Matthew 6, Jesus instructs us to ask God and to depend on God and to trust God to provide for all of our needs. We see it in verse 11. In the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray by saying, Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus there shows that as Christians, we have a dependence on God for our most basic needs. And then he goes on to elaborate on that. From verses 19 to 24, he instructs us not to lay up treasures on earth but to lay up treasures in heaven. He reminds us that you cannot serve two masters, that it's impossible to serve both God and money. And in doing so, he shows us that if we set our heart on the things of this world, if the things of this world are what we treasure and what we chase and what we, uh, we give our lives to pursuing and seeking, that if we desire money and wealth and possessions more than God, then that will destroy us. And so that leads him then in the next passage to his instructions of not being anxious about anything, not being worried or concerned about them, because if God is our God, then we need not be concerned about where our physical needs come from. Just as God clothes and feeds the flora and fauna of our world, how much more 
how much more will he do the same for his children? And besides, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then in verse 33, Jesus tells us to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first. And all these things, meaning the the needs of our lives like food and shelter and clothing, they will be added to you. That verse has an important order that applies to this, this idea of appealing to God for our needs. It's as we seek God's kingdom and His righteousness, it's as we do that, as we pursue that, that our hearts are shaped and transformed and that our wants and the things that we desire and seek after and pray for shift. You see, as you grow in trusting the providence of God and as you grow in pursuing and seeking His kingdom, a strange thing happens. You go from at first thinking to yourself, well, If God is in control of everything, then why should I even bother praying? He's going to do what he's going to do, right? And it shifts from that to realizing that God has ordained for his will to be carried out in part through the prayers of his saints. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray that. In Matthew 6 verse 10, he says, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would Jesus need to teach us to pray like that if it weren't for the the fact that God has ordained that he brings about his will through the prayers of his people? And that then drives us to pray even more and to pray the things that God desires. For me personally, this has led to, perhaps counterintuitively for some, an increase of prayer in my own life. I pray even more for our kids and my friends who, to come to know Christ and for God to provide for His work and for His will to be done. And I found, funnily enough, that I've seen God answer those prayers more often than I ever did than when I thought that God answering my prayers was dependent upon the amount of faith that I had. You see, when we appeal to God with a desire to seek His kingdom first, when we pray that His will would be done, then the difference is that the things we begin to pray about become more and more aligned to the things that God desires to happen in this world. And when we do that, then we find that He will never fail. He will never fail to provide us with what we need. And the more we grow in seeking His kingdom, the more we find that the things we want become more aligned to the things that we need to live as followers of Christ. Hudson Taylor's more well-known quote says, depend on it. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. Brothers and sisters, this means that we can trust that when we bring our appeals to the high king for our needs, he will supply all of them. But there is a difficulty for us in this, right? Who can discern the mind of God? We don't live in the same world as Elisha where God spoke through his prophets and hearing what they said was as good as reading the Bible. We know that God's work done God's way won't lack his supply, but how do we know if we're doing things God's way in our particular situation, right? The Bible doesn't have a verse that says, JR, ask God for the funds to go and be a missionary in Micronesia. I mean, that would be great. I'm sure we'd all love verses like that for our lives, right? And so one danger here is thinking that if if we just do the right thing according to the Bible, then surely God will give us what we're asking for. You know, that if we can play our cards right and get on the so-called good side of sovereignty, then yeah, God is going to do what we want Him to do. And sometimes 
He will (laughs) give us what we're asking for. No doubt. When it's according to his will, he will. But we run into problems if we think we know what God should do. What he should give. Some of the things that we ask for might even be good things to appeal to God for. Perhaps a a bus for a food program in the community or a a church building uh, that can be a hub for Christian ministry or a pay rise so that you can feed your family healthier food options. We should bring such needs and appeals before God. But we must also submit them to His wisdom and His will and trust that He will provide for our needs. Just as a Shunammite woman appealed to the king, so we are to appeal to the king for our needs. But when we do, we do so with a desire to appeal for things that are in accordance with his will and in pursuit of his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's true whether we're in a desperate state or not. So that means that for us right now who who are not living hand to mouth, praying for things that will continue to help you grow in righteousness, like brothers and sisters in Christ who will spur you on and encourage you to grow in that. It means praying for physical needs and the things that God has you doing in the world, whether that's parenting and raising your children, working faithfully in your job, starting a business that will help the flourishing in our city, doing missional work here or elsewhere. There are a multitude of things that this applies to. What are you asking God to provide for that is in pursuit of His kingdom? And do you trust that He will provide? Let's take our needs to God and pray as Jesus instructed us to, trusting in His goodness, trusting in His providence, and in His delight in providing for His work. Well, let's return to see how God provides for the Shunammite woman. I love this next verse because uh, it's a bit like a, Meanwhile, in the king's court, little did she know that the king was having an important conversation himself. Verse 4. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. As I've mentioned before, I think it's possible that the event that we're witnessing here happened before 2 Kings 5, where Gehazi ends with leprosy. One reason you might remember is because the deathly stew miracle happened in the midst of a famine in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. And I think that this is likely the same famine that is being referred to. Another reason is because uh, chapters 4 to 7 in 2 Kings seem to be arranged topically around Elisha's life and miracles, and we've seen how the books of Kings sometimes do this. Uh, They rearrange the chronology a little bit to to arrange things differently. Uh, Like, for example, in the first verse of, of 2 Kings, it mentions the Moabite rebellion, and then it doesn't even return to that story until chapter 3. Not to mention the high improbability of Gehazi being in the king's presence if he had leprosy or some other skin disease. But it could also be that Gehazi was healed or that his leprosy wasn't severe. Uh, And what we see in this scene, uh, after what we saw last week, is the king asking Gehazi about some of the things that the Lord has done through him. That's, That's certainly possible. Even though the text doesn't tell us exactly what's going on here, either way, whether this happened before or after the siege of Samaria, what we see is the king asking Gehazi about what God has done. And so in verse 5, we find yet another of those examples of God's perfectly timed provision. Let's have a read. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. God timed this encounter perfectly. 
just like he did in providing the necessary resources for the, pre- for the feeding program of the China Inland Mission. Do you think that God's timing is perfect? Do you believe that? As I said before, it's, it's not common that God's provision often happens the way that we expect. And that is as true of when God provides what we need as much as it is of what He provides. It's just as true of when God provides as much as it is of what He provides. The lesser-known second half of Hudson Taylor's quote goes like this. He is too wise a God to frustrate His purposes for lack of funds, and He can just as easily supply them ahead of time as afterwards, and He much prefers doing so. Now, whether Hudson Taylor had insight into God's preferences about when he provides a provision, whether before or after, I mean, that's up for debate. But you can see that what he's saying here is, in effect, God will provide the needs for his purposes when he needs to. Have you ever felt like God was taking too long? Have you ever felt yourself, found yourself asking Wandering, waiting, God, where are you? Where is this much-promised provision that is supposed to be coming my way? Have you ever wondered if God got the timing wrong or that perhaps he just never came to the party? Again, personally, I, I struggle with this. How is it that we can hold up one example of a missions organization, organization receiving funds just in the nick of time as an example of God's perfect timing, knowing that, that for every one of these stories, there are who knows how many other examples of faithful ministries and churches closing due to lack of funds? Well, brothers and sisters, we must remember that His timing in His provision and in His divine providence is perfect. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, sometimes what is required is that we wait in trust on the Lord. He knows His people. He knows their needs. Remember that He will not fail to provide for them. In this verse, there's actually an important detail emphasized three times. Did you notice it? Elisha had restored the dead to life. Behold, here is the woman whose son he had restored to life. And here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. In case you missed it, this resurrection of the Shunammite's son, that's big news. God worked through Elisha to bring her dead son to life. And Gehazi tells the king about how God, through Elisha, raised the Shunammite woman's dead son to life. This God, the Lord, Yahweh, the the God of Israel, He is the God of resurrection power. The God who can reverse the effects of death because life comes from Him. We are powerless in the face of death. But God is powerful. We are defeated by death. He is victorious over death. And this is, of course, the very same God who raised Christ from the dead. The very same God who had power to resurrect not just the widow's son, also raised his own son. And this is what we as Christians, we celebrate this every Sunday, not just at Easter time. We celebrate the resurrection of our risen Lord each time we gather. The same God who has power over death and brought the Shunammite woman's dead son back to life revealed that same power for an even greater purpose 
in Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead, this, this just wasn't about bringing him back to life so that he could die again. It wasn't just a bit, simply about God showing the world that he could raise his own son. No, he did it to show that Jesus has victory over death now. And so that the world, the whole world, might now, now be able to hear the gospel of Jesus and respond to him by turning away from their sin and putting their faith in Christ. That faith that we have, that is built on solid ground. What we read in the New Testament is that this isn't a faith that is all about us just you know, trying to have meaningful lives or, or it's because we, we believe in God because He helps give us some kind of spiritual connection to the divine. It's not the kind of hope that most believe is what sets us apart as human beings. You know, every story you read, every movie you watch, oh, human hope, they just have hope in the face of adversity. They can face so many difficulties. No, that's not the kind of hope that the Bible is referring to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a sure hope in knowing that our faith is based on Jesus' victory over death and the fact that we can trust in the things that he has promised because of that. Look at Romans 6, 4-5. We were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ's resurrection gives us resurrection hope. We can be confident that God is sanctifying us as we walk with Him in this life because of Jesus' resurrection, and we can be confident that God will also raise us to life to be with Him when these mortal bodies fade because of Jesus' resurrection. There are so many examples of this right through the New Testament where the authors, they ground their hope that we have as Christians in the resurrection. Perhaps the most pointed, though, is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Feel free to turn there if you like. And let me read to you verses 15, sorry, verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul's concern throughout this section is to talk about how necessary, how crucial it is to the Christian faith that resurrection is real. It's not just something you find in fantasy card games and fantasy video games. And it's not just resurrection generally, which of course is, is what we see in our passage today, but the resurrection of Christ specifically. And he says that because it's not just God's general ability to raise people like the Shunammite son from the dead that gives us hope that he will one day do that for us. The mere fact that God can do it the mere fact that He can raise the dead to life doesn't guarantee that He will do it for us. 
But the resurrection of Christ is crucial because in it, he displays that Jesus has triumphed over our sin. And by faith in that, in him, we can share in his triumph. He goes so far as to say that the world should feel extremely sorry for us if it wasn't true. And I'm sure most do. They think, wow, what a sad, sad group of people believing that's going to happen when really it's just not. You see, Paul is totally right. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is futile. It is pointless. We might as well believe that there's a flying spaghetti monster orbiting around the moon. It's the resurrection that makes our faith go from theory to practice, from sketch to building, from notes on a page to full symphony orchestra. It is because Christ has been raised from the dead that we know that our lives do not finish when we die. That is not the final act. And you know what? That is good news. Friend, if you are here this morning, and if you are wondering about life, perhaps you're, you're wondering what happens after death, let me invite you to consider Christ. He is the Son of God, who was sent down from heaven to live 2,000 years ago as a man, living a life of perfect obedience to God, who was then unjustly crucified on a Roman cross. This was something which happened according to God's providence and His plan, so that through His death and through His resurrection three days later and His ascension into heaven, we might receive forgiveness of our sin and life in Him by turning from our sin and putting our faith in Him. If you are yet to do that today, let me urge you, do so today. That is the entryway into real life in Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it is through God's resurrection power as displayed finally in Christ that we find God provide for our deepest and our greatest need. It is from the confidence of God's provision in that that we can ground our hope and our trust in God's perfect provision for all that we need here today. You know, in all this talk about God's provision, is there a part of you that thinks that maybe God is holding out on you? I've asserted several times, God will provide for what you need. But is there a part of you that thinks maybe he isn't giving you what you need because he's, he's stingy or maybe because he's trying to punish you? Consider this Shunammite woman. The fact that God raised her dead son to life became a defining part of her life story. It's repeated four times in this passage and three times in verse 5 alone. And you can bet that because God had proven himself to her in this, because God had shown that he was good to her and he provided for her in this, that that enabled her to trust in his word, to trust in his provision and to be able to believe and obey him. How much more? Should that be true of us who have a sure hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? let's read how this story finishes in verse 6. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, 
So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. The king asks the woman to verify whether this is a true story or not, which of course she does. And again, it's hard for us to know exactly where the king was at at this point. Was this after the siege and has he repented and changed? And therefore, the reason why he, he provides this for her, was it before that and was he closer to following the Lord? Maybe we have some inklings of that in the other passages. We don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that at the end of the day, this king, King Jehoram, was subject to the providence of a higher king. And it was ultimately the higher king who orchestrated these events to ensure that one of his children was provided for. And she wasn't just provided for with meager rations. She was provided for abundantly. Not only did she get her land back, but even the produce of the fields from the beginning of the famine was calculated and given to her. I'm not sure how much land produces in a famine, but the point is that the king didn't even have to do this. Yes, it was his duty to to give it back to her, but he did not have to abundantly provide more in that. So God is at work here giving the Shunammite woman way more than even what she needed. And that sounds a lot like Philippians 4.19 to me. My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, it's at this point that this sermon could take a hard turn and tell you that we should expect God to always give us way more than we ask or imagine. Now, I hope that what I've said already from Matthew 6 makes it clear that that is not what I'm going to say. Selfish desire for riches and for wealth, they are not what God means when He says He will supply all our needs according to His riches. But perhaps, perhaps you're like me. Perhaps you, uh, in a strong desire not to go in that direction, you swing the other way and expect that God's providence means that He'll, he'll only ever give you just enough or that you know, being more godly means living with less. It means, you know, no, we just ought to trust God and, and even, even if I have just, you know, whatever it is to be able to survive, that's fine. You know, there's truth to that, which I'll get to in a moment, but such a view of God diminishes His lavish generosity. We must remember that our base level understanding of God is that He is good and that He gives good gifts to His children, that He loves to do that and that He gives abundantly. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now those good things might not be what we expect. The Apostle Paul, he was no stranger to suffering. He recounts a few times, like in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five to 27, what that looked like, all sorts of persecution, shipwrecks, all sorts of difficulties, including being without food and shelter, in hunger many times, he says. God left a thorn in his side so that he could depend more on God's grace. And Jesus himself tells us that we'll be persecuted for following him in Luke 21, 16 to 17, by our own family, no less. So yes, God's perfect providential provision is not a blanket guarantee that you will never hunger or lack nothing. I can imagine circumstances where being delivered up might result in death by starvation. But that should not cause us to think that God is not looking after us or that He will not look after us or that He does not provide generously and abundantly. Because at the end of the day, we can have confidence in knowing that He is in control of what will finally happen to us. Look at what Jesus says after saying that we will be hated for His name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. 
by your endurance, you will gain your lives. How can he say this? Not a hair of your head will perish. Because he knew that what he was about to accomplish on the cross would provide for his people in a way that would go beyond our physical needs. God's provision would gift his people with eternal life. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Friends, do you trust that God will provide for all your needs? Let me read to you one final excerpt from Taylor's autobiography. Many seem to think that I am very poor. This certainly is true enough in one sense. But I thank God it is as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. And my God shall supply all my need. To Him be all the glory. I would not, if I could, be otherwise than I am, entirely dependent myself upon the Lord and used as a channel of help to others. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to make sure we appeal to the king on a good day, or when he's in a good mood, or when it might just so happen that he has a fortuitous conversation right before we see him. No, the king that we bring our appeals to is the high king, who demonstrated His love for us by sending His own Son to take on our sin at the cross and who has given us assurance of His provision by raising Him from the dead. He is the one that we can depend on for all our needs in the here and now while we wait to see Him face to face in glory. You can Entrust your life to his perfect providential provision. Will you do that today? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled and reminded yet again that you are a good father who loves to give good things, that you will never let us down, that you will provide always for what we need. And so we pray that as the Shunammite woman did, that we would respond in joyful trusting, obedience, and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.